everybody, and welcome to Taking Control, the ADHD podcast on Rash Pixel FM. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm here with Nikki Kinzer. Hello, everyone. Hello, Pete Wright. Oh, Nikki. You're going to be okay. <laughs> You're going to be okay. <laughs> and so it begins. We uh, have an expert here. I know. She's going to pull through or pull you through any kind of fear or anxiety you have around that. Well, I've been listening to her podcast all morning, and she's now that she's we've had a chance to talk with her, she seems very gentle. And so I think that I think that I'm going to learn some things today. I hope that I am a good avatar for all of you who have struggled with money and debt and budgeting. Uh, I, I pledge to do my part, to do my part mm-hmm. to act as your avatar. Before we dig in, head over to TakeControlADHD.com. You can get to know us a little bit better. You can listen to the show right there on the website or subscribe to the mailing list, and we'll send you an email each time a new episode is released. Of course, you can connect with us on Twitter or Facebook at TakeControlADHD. And if this show has ever touched you, or if you have ever had a feeling that you would like to support us monetarily to cover Pete's pain uh, confronting topics that are triggering then you should visit us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the ADHD podcast. Patreon is listener-supported podcasting. So you spend a few dollars each month for us, and that goes directly back in to us growing the show for you, for building the community, for adding new features to the show, for doing the kinds of things that we love to do to support the ADHD community. Uh, Speaking specifically of the podcast, if you've never visited Take Control ADHD and looked at one of our episode pages, you can see the entire transcript of the show. That is a human-powered transcript of each episode that is directly subsidized by our community members. Those kinds of features and more, patreon.com slash the ADHD podcast. Thank you all for your support. Chelsea Brennan is here. She's the founder of Smart Money Mamas and the annual online summit Mamas Talk Money. It was actually uh, one of our members who attended that summit and just adored you, Chelsea Brennan, and said, came back to us and said, this Chelsea Brennan, you've got to have her on the show. It's been way too long. I have been listening to your podcast zealously since then. And I have to tell you, I have never wanted to have somebody call me mama more than I do right now. (laughs) Well, how are you doing, Welcome to the show. There you go, Chelsea Brennan. That was a cue. Oh, we're good. I'm so excited to be on the show with you guys. This is good stuff. It's been a long time coming, right, Nikki? We've been a, we've 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 had it money has... money on the mind for a while. Yeah, and we we did a series. Of, uh, gosh, it was what it had to have been three or four years ago. It was a long yeah. time ago. So yes, it's definitely time to to be talking about this. And I spent especially during these times when we're in the middle of a pandemic, and a lot of people have lost their jobs, and a lot of people are uncertain about their financial situation and and the future. So it's definitely good timing. And I'm so excited to have an expert come on the show because really, Pete and I don't know what we're talking about. We think we do, but you know, we really don't. So, and we come from two different, uh, as, as if anybody listened to the the show last week, we have two different kind of mindsets too, because I married a husband who is, um, really good with money. (laughs) 
a loaded pause. Uh, yeah. And I'm telling you, I am leaving all of that in the edit. All yeah. of all that of juicy, juicy yeah. pause. He's, I just want to be careful, you know, but yes, he's, I, but I'm going to give him praise because he's very good with his money. And because of that, um, I've learned a lot. So I, I'm a little bit more comfortable with talking about this. Um, but Pete, Pete, you're just a hot mess. I'm so sorry. Well, no, you know, and I'll tell you, it's it. I come from I, I come from that background of having struggled with with money, and I too married yeah. somebody who is uh, who helped me straighten stuff out. If if I was not in a relationship with a partner who uh, kept kept me balanced in that area, I would be um, in much much more trouble than. Yeah, I agree with yeah. that. With me too, because yeah. as I mentioned last week too, if. if uh, my husband, when we first got together, Chelsea, I don't know if you if you heard this, but uh, he had a bonus, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, you buy something, you know, like get get something that you you know you're proud of, and he's like, oh no, I'm investing all of it. You're what? You're doing what? Yeah. So yeah, if it wasn't for him, I I'm sure I would have been in the same amount of debt as I was when I married him. Do you know what he did though? He bought he bought his future, Nikki. That's what he did. He bought his future. Oh. Yeah. What do you think of that? Look at that. Somebody put that on a shirt. Intern, put that on a shirt. <laughs> Chelsea Brennan, how did you get get into this business of helping? I realize you've said like exactly three words, and one of them right, was to right. me, and this it was not Mama. About us. Let's go. That clearly we're come. We bring baggage to you. Please tell us about yourself. I want to kick off first, though. That it's impressive to me that both of you have partners that you feel like have improved your financial situation, and that you guys are working together because that is so uncommon in most relationships, right? And I think that's where really? a lot of people struggle is that they don't talk well about money with their partner, where especially if one person is better with money than the other, the person who's not as good feels less than and feels like they're being talked down to. And that finding that balance is a really amazing thing. So first of all, congratulations on that. That's great. That's amazing. <laughs> I did not know that that was uncommon. I didn't either. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big problem. Um, but where I come from, so my background is in super boring corporate. I was a hedge fund manager. So I managed a distressed debt portfolio, which basically means debt for companies that are going bankrupt. Um, and I did that for several years. Before that, I was on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs. And all of this gave me a deep understanding of investing and finance and money, but it lacked purpose, right? It was a real struggle for me of you're not you're helping the rich get richer in that role and it has its purpose but it just reaches a point where i wanted something that was more and so after, right before the birth of my second child i left uh that job to start smart money mamas and start running that full time um and to focus on let's talk more about the personal side of money let's get away from this big institutional investing and really help families and women thrive with money both so that they can live lives that they really want and so they can set a better example for the next generation, right? Because when we talk about parents, we have this opportunity to teach and to change the narrative. And so I really wanted to focus on moms as I started my journey in education. You could have been Gordon Gecko. That's what I just heard. <laughs> for a little while, I got to do that. And that was, That's you know, amazing. had its own interesting background. And horrible. Like, what a turn. You literally made the Darth Vader turn. <laughs> And especially because I used to cover metals and mining companies. So we were looking at coal companies and steel uh, companies. It was real, real dark side to turn to turn it around. 
Wow. <laughs> You're my hero. That is an amazing <laughs> turn. You are like the storybook. You're Joseph Campbell all in one right there. The hero's turn. Look, okay, so that is a that is an incredibly valuable background uh, in coming to this conversation mm-hmm. about managing money with heart. So, uh, you know, as we had talked about, we want to cover kind of two topics here, but I mm. think they're really nested topics. They're one big topic. We want to talk about budgeting and, and why Pete doesn't do it and and getting out of debt. And as you said in our pre-show, those are really two things. We want to talk about one really important foundational lesson before we talk about the other. How, how do you start this before I start yeah. peppering you with questions? Right. <laughs> so we're going to start with two, actually the first two steps are nothing to do with numbers. And I want people to pull away from the numbers for a second, and especially because I think the numbers are what scare a lot of us. But the first thing I want you to think about is what do you believe about money, right? And what are your earliest money memories? And this feels a little soft to a lot of people who are like, I just need to figure my money out. I just need to get into the numbers. But if you go there first, if you go there before you deal with the emotional side, you're going to keep getting sucked into the same cycles. So let me tell you what I mean. Most early, most core money beliefs are set by age seven. They are things that we see as children that we do not have the perspective to understand. Often it's things like something our parents said in a store, our parents arguing about money. And we drew this big conclusion because as kids, we want to create order out of chaos, right? We draw this big conclusion that lacked perspective that is probably wrong, that then we carried through our entire life, right? And so the Mm -hmm. example I most commonly use is this woman who is in the grocery store with her mother. She asked for this small toy. Her mother said, no. Daddy only gave me this much money for groceries. And in her moment, mind, in that moment, she decided that her dad was the determinant of what was worthy of buying with money and that men controlled money. And both of those things, even as she embraced really feminist principles, even as she built her own career, this was something that lived in the back of her mind, right? She was always looking for someone else's approval. She was always looking for her boyfriends or her husband to take care of the big decisions. And so... Once she realized that, it was easier to make a shift, right? It was easier to look at that, whatever that belief was, and say, hey, I don't actually think that. (laughs) Like, that actually has problems in it, and I can start to unwork it a little bit, right? And so that's just one example. But I'd take a moment and think about what are the words that come up when I think about money? What Are they generally positive words? Are they generally negative words? What fears do I have? Um, And then take a minute. Um, I often recommend taking a day or two, like writing it down, writing those initial things down, taking a day or two and coming back and saying, is this actually the relationship I want with money? Is this the relationship I want with something that touches almost everything I do, right? Where I live, what Mm -hmm. vacations I go on, what do I buy at the grocery store? And if not, then start to rewrite those beliefs. Sometimes that means completely inverting them. Sometimes it means changing them slightly, but kind of work on those beliefs. And I am far from someone who has any expertise in ADHD, But what I have heard from women in our community often that have ADHD is I can't handle money, right? I'm too impulsive or I just, this is not going to be something that I can do. And I'm just, I'm just bad with money. It keeps coming back to, I'm just bad with money. And I think that that is a core thing we have to change before we can tackle budgeting and tackle debt. And we have to think about, okay, maybe I have to handle money differently. Maybe I have to find a strategy that works for me, but I am good with money and kind of repeating that thing. I love that oh, I do because too. It, it it really is addressing the limiting belief first. And as in anything that we talk about with ADHD, we have to address that that first, that mindset mm. before seeing anything different and believing that you can do something different. So I'm really glad that you pointed that out. That's great. 
I'm very curious, Chelsea, what your earliest memories are of money that defined your career in finance, because something that you must have learned before you were seven drove you to your aspirational role as almost Gordon Gecko, and then back out of it again. Absolutely. What was that? Can you give us that example? I can. So I don't have a specific moment, um, but because it was my entire, it was embedded in my entire childhood where my dad had a real idolization of wealth. And I got the message really early on that wealth equals your worthiness of love and belonging and attention, right? And that he wanted my brother and I to be financially successful, to be outwardly successful and something that he could brag about, right? And so I really absorbed this in a big way. It made me a perfectionist. It made me someone who wanted to always be doing the next big thing. And in college, when I had to struggle with this really big decision of, I love education. I love teaching. Uh, clearly, right? That's what I do now. Yeah. Um, and I had to make this decision of, was I going to go teach middle school, which was one of the things that I wanted to do, or was I going to go into investing? And I pulled back and forth with this decision for a while. And what I ended up deciding was, well, if I go into investing first, I can earn all the money, I can build the wealth. And then later on, I'll have earned the right to go back and teach. And obviously, this was a hugely problematic thing, right? It, it influenced my ability to even spend the money that I earned. Huge amounts of money, right? And we were talking about, I always call it stupid money, but I couldn't spend it. Like you talked about your husband with the bonus. I got my first big Wall Street bonus and I couldn't buy a bicycle, guys. Like I stood in the mm-hmm. store and I cried because I could not see my bank balance go down. And so this is something that I have spent a lot of time unwinding. And especially even so, like I think that it's important that we recognize that this isn't something we switch once and then it's just better because we've grown our whole personality, our whole mindset around it. So it's an ongoing journey. So it's something that I thought I had largely overcome. And then I leave this job where I'm making high six figures to zero because I'm starting a new business. My husband's a stay-at-home dad. Now we're not getting a regular paycheck. And it all came back up for me again. Like I was convinced that my husband wasn't going to love me anymore. He was going to get sick of me leaving the business, that I was failing my kids. And I had to keep working through this to separate kind of my own self-worth from my net worth. But that's my that's my limiting belief. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of do have to look back and say like, where is this coming from and, and how can I overcome it? It's really interesting. Hmm. Okay. One of the first questions that came up for me listening to one of your episodes this morning was, was you, you framed a question in terms of how do you, how important it is to come to an understanding of what happens after you get out of debt. Mm. And that seems like a related concept to what we're talking about here. If you're living in a, in a state of constraint around debt, why is it important to create this vision of your life beyond it. Absolutely. So Pete and Nikki, I said earlier that those first two steps weren't about numbers. And so this is actually the second step, which is about life planning and goal planning. What do you want your life to look like? Where are you headed? And when you talk about, Pete, why we do that beyond debt, the first reason is we hear from people a lot that they learn that they need to get out of debt or they're so stressed out by their debt that they're finally like, I'm sick of it. I'm going to get rid of it. And I'm going to do everything I have to do to get rid of that debt. And then the debt is gone and that big scary monster they were fighting for so long is gone and they don't know what to do. 
right? They no longer have a purpose for that money and they fall right back into old habits because their only focus was fighting that big scary monster, right? And they end up in a cycle. The second reason is for some people, depending on how much debt you have, this is a long journey. This can be years that you're working on paying off your debt, right? And so you need to have a bigger motivation than watching the balance come down. Because at first, early in your journey, your first few months, that's really exciting. It's like, we paid off $400 of debt. We're amazing. But by month Mm -hmm. six, you're like, oh, I really just want to go out and like have a super nice dinner and go do whatever that I want to do. And I don't want to worry about this debt anymore. But if you have a bigger vision, if you're paying off the debt as a stepping stone to being able to buy your dream house or a stepping stone to being able to retire and have the retirement that you want, if you have a bigger vision, then the motivation is longer lasting. Which is probably why a vision board can be so helpful, Mm. right? Uh, I have a vision board for people that can't see the video behind me. And it's actually the same bulletin board that Chelsea has too. Also have it behind me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, But I can see why that would be important though, because if there was something you're really reaching for, having it in front of you, which is really important for ADHD because they, they can so easily forget what the motivation is. Mm. So anyway, that was just something to add that having it in front of you. And I would add to that, I'm going back into the the motivators that have fueled me in my sort of roller coaster cycle of dealing with debt in the past. And mm-hmm. one of those motivators is exactly what you said. It's that act of just sort of falling into hyper-focus on watching the balance go down. And then once it comes down, what do I have? I guess I better start collecting antique cereal boxes (laughs) or something stupid. Like, what else do I have? And, uh, you know, you feel like there's this massive void and emptiness that comes with it. I'll tell you something that I could see myself doing is, hey, I just paid off $400 of debt. I can go ahead and spend another $50 on this. It's okay because yeah. I already did 400. So instead of really doing 350 I've, or four, I'm doing 350. But in my mind, I'm still like rewarding myself when really it's not helping me. Mm. But I can totally see myself doing that. Better yet, <laughs> I just paid $400 off on the credit card over there. So I better go spend $150 off of this credit card over here because I paid that one down. I'm good boy. I need to be rewarded yeah. for my good deeds. And I think that comes back to goal setting too, is deciding what rewarding yourself looks like, right? And I think that Mm -hmm. we have, there's a lot of things we buy to fill other voids that we think are bringing us joy, but really we buy them and then we feel just as (laughs) a little bit later. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I think as you go through this exercise and as we start to go through the budgeting journey that we'll talk about in a second, it's looking through your past expenses and saying, why did I want this? And what is its rank of does it actually bring me joy and what are the things that I can do? And so one of the exercises we talk about at Smart Money Mamas is like, what are the things that really make you feel closer to your family, make you feel more content and joyful? And let's talk about ways that you can get those same feelings that cost less, right? And all families have Mm. something, right? Like my family is major board gamers. So my husband and I love sitting down and playing board games. And we have a local shop that they don't even charge for table time. You can come in, you can use games off the shelf. We usually pay a few bucks for drinks or drinks and snacks. And that's it. It's a date night. It costs us less than 20 bucks, less than 10 often. And that's plenty for us. And we we're able to ditch the nice dinner out and movie because we don't actually like that as much. It doesn't actually let us connect as much. So it's really just thinking about what is rewarding yourself look like? Because I don't believe that on any debt payoff journey, 
you should restrict all joy because that you'll never be able to sustain it. That was actually my very next question. It was the sort of the the ADHD angle on this budget deprivation mm. sensation, right? That to me, I can see a con- the connective tissue between maintaining a budget and finding a way to feel good about it and feel like I'm sort of rejecting myself, like that that rejection sensitivity sort of crops up that says, because I am I am not spending as much, because I feel like I, I have to make a choice to go not take the family to a movie tonight, which will cost us, you know, 80 bucks, 100 bucks, that I am somehow a bad person. And that's the ADHD connectivity that, that I can see how I could arrive there from a negative experience, a negative family experience, a negative sort of sense memory of, of managing money. And I think that we have to decide why it's a negative experience to not go out mm-hmm. to the movies, right? And I think when we have that broader goal that is speaking, it is us being true to ourselves. Well, maybe that decision isn't about deprivation. Maybe it's about living more in alignment with who we are and who we want to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that's okay to skip the movies if it means we're going to you know, make popcorn at home and, and do something together. I think that we need to find ways to make the budget not feel like deprivation. Well, mm-hmm. and I, I don't want to make this too, you know, too anchored in time, but you know, it is the world that we're living in. Mm. And I am, I, I was sort of reflecting on this this morning, just how remarkably clear-headed we have as a family become thanks to our, you know, isolation efforts, right? We're eating out obviously much less. We are not doing the thing, the sort of expensive outside things that we we used to feel like we can't live without. Yeah. And this has been an, a real opportunity to be able to reflect on what really are the necessities? What are the things that we really can't live without? And, um, you know, is there a way for us to, as you say, to get that same sort of joy uh, and and do it together at home in a in a new way, and that this has been a, a real benefit. It's such a hard topic with what's going on in the world because some people yeah. are really struggling, right? We've had unemployment and issues, um, but there are a lot of people who, just like you just said, Pete, they're home. <laughs> they still have their jobs. Mm-hmm. They are actually spending less than they ever have before. And this is an opportunity to reset and to say like, and a lot of those people have said through this crisis, like, okay, I need to go back and look at my budget to make sure we're going to be okay, even if we do lose a job. And we've heard from a lot of people who are saying, I never realized how much fat I really had in my budget until I've been home yeah. and now seen how much less we spend. And I think we can do that exercise without global pandemic, but it has forced yeah. us all to look at it. Right. <laughs> well, it is. And and I, I want to echo what you just said. I mean, it's just how powerful it is that, that there, I mean, there are people obviously really struggling and how are small businesses surviving? Those mm-hmm. kinds of questions that obviously have to, have to be addressed somehow. So finding the balance of supporting the economy, tipping well <laughs> to the people who are bringing you things like the, all yeah. of those things, I feel like I'm heart heavy. Um, but also opportunity to reflect on how I manage that. Can you tell us before we start into the steps, because I know we're, I'm, I'm anxious to get into some steps and strategies, but can you just give us some reflection on good debt versus bad debt, school loans, mortgages? What's your perspective on this? Because I, I hear conflicting things from people who, you know, feel strongly about such things. Yeah. So I think that the good debt versus bad debt argument, right? The, the basis of it is always that good debt is any debt that helps you earn more money over the long term, right? So like buying a really fancy car with a big car loan, bad debt by this definition, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. diminishing value. You're never going to get your money back. You're just, you're paying a high interest rate, like just not beneficial. Student loans, if it means that you can go earn more money, which we could talk about 
what that really means. <laughs> and whether, That calculation mm-hmm. has actually changed a lot in the last 10 weeks. It has changed a lot. In, it, it, it's changed a lot over the past several years, right? Depending on what right. your major is and, and what you want to do with your life. Like that's not necessarily a high ROI, but that's typically defined as, as good debt. Mortgage fits in that bucket as well. I think the hard thing with a mortgage is that when you look at the longevity studies of building wealth through homeownership, you're actually mathematically, and you guys will see this if you Google around, like you're mathematically better off taking that money and putting it in the market and renting mathematically. The problem is you have to be able to take the difference, the, the down payment you would have put towards your house, all the money you would have put towards home repairs and actually invest it, which most people won't do. And so mm. a house and a mortgage can be good debt only because it's a forced savings vehicle. You have to pay your mortgage every month, which means you have to build equity. And that is a positive thing. Even though there might be more optimized ways to do it, it's the most automatic way to do it. Debt is still always just debt, right? So you're always going to pay an interest rate. And when you can avoid it, that's likely going to be your best scenario. So let's take student loans as, as an example. We've seen that going to the best, most expensive private college often does not have this huge ROI versus going to a state school that is lower priced. We have this idea of what that value is in our heads and the prestige, but it doesn't actually monetarily come out the other side. So instead of telling kids, if your parents or or you're someone who's considering going back to school, instead of internalizing this message of like, student loans are good debt, it's okay, let's take on student loans. Let's think about the ways to get that degree but minimize our debt, right? Like how can we actually read about applying for financial aid? What scholarships can we apply for? Um, Because scholarships, there's tons and tons and tons of them out there and many of them get very few applications. And so like, how can we be better about optimizing that? We still want to reduce debt overall, um, but that's generally the split is, is this debt helping you earn more money or is it something that you're just going to, you're paying in the future for something you experienced in the past? Good, good explanation. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and thank you. I have I have monopolized the peppering questions segment. Let us let us talk about some strategies. Nikki, where do you want to start? Well, I think the the basic question that I get a lot, and I I say basic, but it's not basic because it's so layered. I, you know, I'll get somebody that will want to work with me and what do you want to work on? And one of the very first things they'll say is, I want to work on my finances. Mm-hmm. I want to set a budget. I, I know kind of how I approach that. So that's kind of what I'm helping them with. But I'm always telling them to go talk to a financial advisor too, or an accountant or an ex- expert because I'm not an expert. Mm. So I guess that's where I would want to start is like, what, where do you, like, where do you even start with this big, huge issue of, I want to get financial control back or I, you know, I, this budget thing, like, what is a budget? <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right. So first steps first, right? Let's know where we stand. And I think that we hear from people all the time. And this sometimes surprises. Maybe this is like the relationship thing. You guys will be surprised. People don't even know how much debt they have or they don't know how much money's in their mm-hmm. bank account, right? It's like they, they're afraid of it. And so they just kind of ignore it and hope that it fixes itself and then it doesn't. So I think the first step is always, let's get a lay of the land. Like set aside your, for yourself, 30 minutes, log into all of your accounts, write down your checking balance, your savings balance, each of your debts and how much your monthly payments are. And let's just get a full picture of what is happening. Mm -hmm. The next step, and this is where there's different strategies for this, right? Um, One of my top strategies, the things I like to do first is what I call creating a ramen budget. 
And so this is sitting down and saying, if I had to go back to college eating ramen noodles and spending as little money as humanly possible, what do I need to survive and keep a roof over our heads and food in my kids' mouths, right? So mortgage or rent payments, debt payments that you already have need to be included in there, right? Food, basic expenses. We're keeping basic expenses, insurance. And then you've already looked at your numbers, right? So we're going to take our ramen budget and we're going to compare it to our income. So let's say your ramen budget is $2,000 a month and you make $4,000 a month. Now you see that you actually have a lot of choice. And so that extra $2,000, I think a lot of people get stuck in this place of, I want to fix my finances, but I have no money to pay off debt or I have no money to do the things I want to do. And this exercise in most cases shows you that you have room to maneuver. If you're truly living in an impoverished situation, there's not going to be that gap, right? You're going to, you're, you're living on your ramen budget all the time. And in that case, the work is really more around figuring out how to increase income and side hustle and change the pattern. But first you want to, you want to create that ramen budget before we even go and look at where your spending has been historically. So is that a minimum payment of credit card? Like say you have credit card debt and your minimum payment is $20 and somebody's been paying a hundred dollars on it. The, the ramen is $25. Is that correct? Whatever your minimum payments are. Okay. And the goal is to say, okay, now I have this base budget. I know how much money I have to allocate to other things, right? Because we do have other things we like to enjoy, whether it's a date night out with our spouse or paying off debt. And now we get to take the choice and say, where does that money best serve me in different ways, right? Of the extra money I have sitting around, how much do I want to go to retirement? If I want to pay off debt, what order do I want to pay those debts off, right? And so sometimes we see this where you have somebody with six credit cards that all have a balance, and let's for simplicity say that they all have $20 minimum payments. And on all six, you're paying $100 just to try to pay it off. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is it's kind of like running in place where you're not mm-hmm. really seeing a big impact on any of them and then you just get frustrated. And so the better thing to do is to take that extra money from each and throw it at one debt until it's completely paid off. And then take everything you were throwing at the first debt and throw it at the second debt. And you get that positive feedback of, hey, I completely get to close this credit card now. Like we're on a roll. We got this and keep moving forward. I've heard in the past, like you can consolidate credit cards. Mm. So you could use, you know, you could apply for one credit card, put all of your six credit cards onto that one. Do you recommend that or not? Not unless you absolutely need to, or you have a very solid plan and you've already created the habit of paying off the debt. And the reason for that is that even while in some cases consolidating the debt can reduce your interest rate to some extent, it creates, instead of creating having six or seven different debts that are reasonably sized that you're paying off, you now have this big monolith. (laughs) And the emotional side of that is really hard. Overwhelming, right? Okay. And isn't there some sort of ex- some sort of impact on your credit, right? Like because if you are consolidating all your debt and closing off the credit cards that you don't have anymore, because that seems like the smart thing to do, then you have potentially higher debt to available credit ratio, and that is damaging to you. There's a few things. One depends on how you consolidate, right? So if you're actually going and getting yeah. a personal loan, that's different than going through like a debt management agency. In which case, even just going through the process of consolidation can lower your score. Not everyone who consolidates has to close those credit cards, Pete. 
And so this is where we get the sliding slope where you Even consolidate and now you have a bunch of cards with a zero balance and you're just going to yeah. make the process worse. That's why I say we want to have the habit first. Yeah. Um, and then mm-hmm. you're right on, on the two sides for your credit score. One, if you did that, if you completely consolidated and you closed all your other credit cards, your debt utilization would go up, which is a huge factor in your credit score and your credit age, your average credit age would go down. And that's a big deal in your credit score as well. So if you had a credit card that had been open for 10 years and it was your longest card and you closed it, now the credit agencies may look at your account and say, oh, you only have two years of credit history. Mm-hmm. In which case you're going to get dinged on that as well. So those are always things to keep in mind. I, I Of all of that, like I come back to the emotional satisfaction of completing the sort of avalanche or snowball. I know there are variants of, mm-hmm. of what you call this, but but the the number one thing for us was the emotional satisfaction of having gone through this process, having a spreadsheet of, you know, six or eight debts, including, you know, car payments and school loans and all those things, and watching them disappear actually provided so much more positive momentum than any sort of consolidation could have done. Like, it just, for for us, it was huge. It kept us paying ahead and not spending behind us. And I think that that visual aspect Nikki was talking about earlier is powerful here too, is we we see a lot of people have success with literally printing like a debt-free chart of Mm -hmm. each, for each individual card. Like, okay, we've got $600 on this card. Each time we pay off, 20 bucks, we're going to color in a square. And just having that like constant reminder that you're actually making progress, because I think sometimes, especially when you're first getting started and you haven't built that snowball or avalanche yet, the steps feel really small and insignificant, even though they're not. And so reminding yourself that even though it feels like nothing's changing, things are getting better and you are making progress is a way to make sure you keep going. Mm-hmm. So if you have six credit cards and you have to choose one that you're going to pay off, mm. do you look at the interest rate? Do you look at the amount of the debt? Like, how do you choose which one to focus on? <laughs> so uh, as Pete said, there's multiple strategies to do this. The first that is the most commonly discussed and popularized by Dave Ramsey is to look at the balance and to pay off the lowest balance card first and then the next lowest balance and the next lowest balance. His logic in that uh, has always been, comes back to the emotional momentum, right? If you start with the smallest balance, you can completely pay something off to Mm -hmm. zero the fastest. And then you can take that payment and move it over. And by building up payments, by the time you get to the biggest one, it's faster to pay off because you have more money going towards it. You have all the minimum payments from the previous cards and whatever extra you have. The second most common is the avalanche. And the avalanche is looking at interest rate and it's paying off your highest interest rate debt first so that you're paying the least amount in interest. Mm -hmm. The thing is that even when you take the same amount of money and you do it perfectly, in most cases, the avalanche doesn't save you that much money. We're talking about most a couple hundred bucks. And so Mm -hmm. for a lot of people, the emotional part of the of the snowball is a better choice and it means that it's higher likelihood of success. My favorite is actually one that a friend of mine who paid off $80,000 of debt came up with and she talks about, which is the big scary monster. And we go back to our money stories. Take a look at your debt and which one feels the most impossible? Which one eats at your mind every time you have to pay it? Which one are you just like, well, this is never going to change and pay that one first. Because once you tackle whatever the one is eating your brain the most, the other ones feel easy. It's like, if okay, I can do that one, then I can do anything. And so you have to choose which works for you. I think making sure you set an order from the beginning so that you don't bounce around, you don't start with credit card A and then jump to credit card C is important. But any of those methods will work. 
just decide what works for your family. Mm-hmm. Dude, it saved us years going through this. I mean, I, when you look at what it was costing us to not have a plan, it saved us years. Mm. And to own our cars. Like that was a that was an amazing and insidious bit of debt that we just, you sort of ignore. It's like a separate thing in the garage that's not a part of our debt <laughs> until we internalize that and put that on the list too. Um, it, it, it never really triggered. We've internalized that car loans are, are 100% necessary, right? Of like this, this yeah. psyche of, especially when you have dealerships offering like, zero percent for a year two percent or super low interest rates and we're like oh well i'll just pay this six hundred dollar bill every month in perpetuity (laughs) and then once you don't have it anymore you don't realize the emotional space you have like yeah oh this is so much more relaxing to not have to pay this bill every month i had to like really think about what i wanted to win with my car like i gamify everything Mm -hmm. and now it's like i want to drive it into the ground (laughs) it has 170 plus thousand miles on it and i want it to i if you know how far past 200 can i get it like that's my new motivation Mm -hmm. is is like let's not buy i want to drive it into the ground and then maybe not need a car like maybe that's the the aspiration i just have to say i have a little story that's kind of funny so last year uh we bought a new car mm-hmm. and we t- we turned in our 2003 acura because <laughs> that's how long we'd had that car <laughs> so we'd had the car for that long and finally it was time to get a new car because that car was definitely you know, at its uh, end of life. But when the Toyota guy was like, okay, well, you know, he's trying to do his little sales thing and trying to say, okay, well, you know, come back and see us when you're ready to, you know, upgrade or move on. And we just kind of looked at him. We're like, did you see the car that we turned in? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're not going to see us for at least another 15, maybe 20 years. So <laughs> and I think, maybe your uh, kid will be in here selling us yeah, the car. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think it's important to remember here that it seems like everyone talking now doesn't value cars, right? Like, I don't care. Like, I used to race go-karts in cars, so I'm never going to get the feeling driving a streetcar than I did before. So I'm kind of like, whatever, if it gets me to point A to point B. But if you go through this exercise and you decide that having a fancy car is like, it brings you an immense amount of joy, right? Like, I have friends that have Teslas that are like, this is the great... Every time I get in the car, I feel like I'm in the future. Great. Well, maybe getting out of debt gives you that freedom to get that car. And it means that you don't do other things that maybe Nikki, Pete and I do, Mm -hmm. but you have your car. And I think that that's what we have to remember is like everybody's values are going to be different. You're going to figure those out as you start your budgeting process. But a budget can get you more of what you want. It doesn't mean depriving yourself from the things that are important. It doesn't mean you have to drive a 2003 Acura for the next 15 years. Right, (laughs) right, right. I don't recommend that when there's an actual hole in the ground. Uh, <laughs> but um, okay, so going back to this, like getting started on the budget, yeah. we need to really look at where where we are. What what do we owe? How much money do we have coming in? Uh, getting a realistic picture, and then what? Then what do we do? Sure. So then it's the determinant of like what do we want? What do we want to accomplish with the rest of our money, and what do we have left? So we always talk to about in that early making stock of our accounts, our first financial goal should always be to have an emergency fund. And I think you'll hear from a number of experts that you'll that you'll hear the like five hundred to a thousand dollar emergency fund. If you have debt, get you a thousand dollars and then tackle your debt. Throw everything at your debt. I think COVID showed us what a difficult situation that can put you in because a thousand dollars, five hundred dollars, it doesn't get you very far when you don't have a job. And so I think the first thing we have to tackle as we look at that money is we say like, okay, here's our ramen budget. Here's how how much we have left. 
What does our emergency fund look like? And should we fund that first? And for some people, that's going to look like, okay, I need to get to $1,000 and then I'm going to I'm going to fight on two fronts. I'm going to pay off my debt with $300 a month. I'm going to put $300 a month to my emergency fund until I get to two months of my ramen budget or three months of my ramen budget, right? So that worst case scenario, I'm at least can keep a roof over my head and food in my mouth for a few months, no matter what happens. So checking in on that emergency fund and setting that goal first is like the next thing that we do. Then it's that debt order, right? What are we going to pay off first? And then I think the next step we have to think about is what where are we going to make space for the things that make us happy, right? Are we going to take, is it going to be, you know, $15, $20 for me and my spouse each to do whatever we want with a month, no questions asked, go get donuts, go do whatever you want. Um, And that money will go up over time. Is it that we want to make space that our kids can each do one activity a season and that we have money for that? Decide what your priorities are um, and understand that then this first take that you have, right? Your your necessities are covered, your basic goals, emergency fund and debt are covered, and your kind of necessities that are most important to you are covered. This is going to shift. So now we have to build the practice. We have the plan, right? We know where our money's supposed to go. We know what our basic goals are. But now we're going to learn. And so I think sometimes we sit down and we say, okay, our ramen budget is $400 a month on groceries or whatever the number is. And then we figure out that like, okay, maybe we could do that if we really had to. But in most cases, we spend 650 bucks a month on groceries. So where are we going to shift to make that fit? And understanding that that month where you go over that grocery budget that you set, you did not fail at budgeting. You learned about your lifestyle and where we needed to make moves and like try to embrace that your budget is a living thing. Oh, that is such a good point because I can totally see people immediately saying, I failed, this doesn't work, I can't keep a budget after just one month. Mm. It happens all the time. Yeah. And I think that that's, the, that's a big space of this is just whatever we set up when we first sit down to do this exercise, this is just a starting place. And we're going to learn and we're going to figure it out on the, on the go. So from once you have that starting place, I think the next thing is habits, right? So for me, um, I think especially at the beginning and especially if you don't have a tight attention span or you're not used to this practice, five minutes a day. So like set an alarm in your phone. At this time every day, I'm going to look at my accounts. I'm going to check on what I spent that day and I'm going to plan for tomorrow. Right. And so like just super quick, like what happened? And this can be, this can be really little things. So meal planning, food is like the silent killer of budgets in, in America. It's just like a huge people spend way more money on food than they think. And so what happens all the time we hear, at least from moms in our community is, okay, I made a meal plan and I'm going to, I only spent this much on, on groceries and we're going to, we're not going out this week. We're just going to cook at home. And then comes Wednesday and their son has soccer practice and their daughter has ballet and I have to pick them up and we're just going to go through the drive through. Right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. And had they drive through is also food. Is also <laughs> food. <laughs> but had they done the five minute check in the day before, and part of my five minute daily check in is I just scroll to the next day on the calendar and see what's there. They could have adjusted. Right. When they made lunches in the morning, they could have made extra sandwiches to give to the kids to go to their activities for dinner. They could have shifted. Um, And so I think that that really small step a day, do something every day to check in on your money is important. The next stage of that, because five minutes is not necessarily going to cover everything that we have to do, right? You're not going to be able to pay all your bills in five minutes, is your weekly money meeting. And if you're married, I highly recommend doing this with your partner as much as possible and making it 
fun, right? So this can be a relaxing thing. This can be, you know, the kids go to bed and we put on music or we, you know, get a glass of wine or whatever we do. We're going to have 20 minutes, 30 minutes to talk about what's the next week. Can we pay the bills? What went wrong in the last week that we need to shift this week? Like, hey, like Mm -hmm. we thought, once again, we'll go back to food. Like we thought we were going to cook six nights this week. And by week four, we were exhausted. So should we shift that next week, we're only going to cook four times, but we're going to cook more food so we eat leftovers the other night, right? And so have those little meetings, start those little meetings every single week with something that went well. Pick something that went well, whether it's like... Keeping it positive. Yeah, like, hey, this week I did my daily check-ins four times and I've never Mm -hmm. done it four times out of seven. (laughs) Like that's a Mm -hmm. win. Or, you know, we talked about an expense before you just went to the hardware store and bought $400 of tools that we don't need, right? Like it's like we had some conversations, pick wins, even if they're tiny at first Mm -hmm. and always start there. Don't start with arguments about where things went wrong because it's going to cause way too much tension around that conversation. But it's really about building the habits. I like that. Well, and the weekly meeting too, it sort of keeps what you were saying. It keeps the journey alive. It keeps it in front of you. This is an ongoing work in progress. You don't just set the budget and then leave it alone. Yes. Which I think can happen, right? I think it totally happens. (laughs) And I think that happens a lot with people of like, we view budgeting in a monthly framework, right? It's almost like dieting where we're like, well, it's June 8th, so we'll start in July. Or, you know, July's already gone. And so we check in. Our our brain wants to check in once a month. And by we can't mm-hmm. course correct when it's gone that far. So having those little daily moments and then the weekly kind of little bit bigger meetings can, can be a huge help and make sure that we're adjusting. And I think that when we talk about making them fun or making them more relaxing, setting them on the calendar is helpful for some people. Uh, my husband wants warning, right? It's like, I can come to him and be like, okay, every Friday after the kids are going to go to bed, we're going to talk about money for 20 minutes. Oh man, your husband and I would be so tight. <laughs> <laughs> but if I walk into the kitchen and I'm like, hey, we need to talk about the budget. His head is going to like explode, yeah. like just totally explode. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And so any kind of routine and, and setup and getting people, giving people the opportunity to get ready to have a conversation that they might be a little bit uncomfortable with uh, makes it a little bit easier. And it means if you are in a bad money situation, mm-hmm. you're not nit- nitpicking at each other constantly. And so we see this come up too of like every single day you're having an argument about something and it's like, all right, let's just talk about this all on one at one time. Mm-hmm. And then you're also giving yourself time to calm down from whatever made you angry at your partner to begin with, right? So you're not just talking about it in the heat of the moment. But those weekly meetings can be really powerful. And I think that they're good marriage and relationship check-ins. I think they're good dreaming opportunities and a way to say like, does our life look the way we want it to right now? And how can we start getting to where we want to go? They're just really powerful things. Even though they seem at first, when I tell people they have to talk about money every week, they're like, want to bang their head against the wall. That is not what it is. It can be a very enjoyable activity. (laughs) Well, it can be. And I think that, you know, what I see happens to me and and to other people is that, oh, you want to go on vacation. So you plan a vacation, but you don't really plan for the money that it's going to take to go on that vacation. And so then you get that handy little credit card and, you know, all of a sudden we have $5,000 in debt that we didn't have before because we went to Disneyland, you know, (laughs) or whatever. Right. Um, And so I think it does give you the opportunity of, okay, if we want to go on vacation this summer, what do we want to do? How can we save some money 
so that we're not doing the credit card. And then I think the same with like Christmas too. Mm, like yeah. how to not overspend. And I am so guilty of that. I overspend at Christmas terribly. I mean, it's awful. I, I solved that one. What did you do? Oh, I feel so good about this. I can contribute. <laughs> <laughs> Share me. I just created, you know, we were part of a credit union and I don't know, their online interface is devilishly easy to create new accounts, like new savings accounts. So we create a new little savings account for everything. Mm. And one of them is my Christmas account. And so starting January 1st, every time I get paid, I put a percentage of that check. Maybe it's $10, maybe it's $15 into the Christmas account. And by the time, you know, October, November runs around, we can subsidize Christmas every year now. And that is an amazing little gift. Again, buying into your future is like around that. What? why it takes like that is so satisfying for me and yet my head still explodes at the thought of being approached unannounced to talk about money <laughs> is mm-hmm. crazy what is that all about and uh, it, but uh yeah that was that's a little uh little budget hack that we used it's just i mean it's effectively what it's envelope budgeting but it's one of those things that once it's out of our once it's out of my check once i've done the transfer i'm not going to transfer it back it's not on a card that i can spend it's just there and so the finance nerd phrase for that, Pete, is called sinking funds. Yeah. And as you learn to budget, you create these funds for different irregular expenses. Christmas is one that comes up all the time. Vacation is one that comes up all the time, but also things like property taxes, right? That you only pay yes. every three months. And so I use a service called uh, YNAB or You Need a Budget, which is what I've always used to budget, except for in moments when we really need to kind of reset and then we use paper uh, for a month or two, mm-hmm. but YNAB has a specific setup that you can create categories to allocate money to that just roll them over every month. And so we talk once again about money stress. When that big bill comes in, whether it's home insurance or car insurance or whatever it is, the, the month, the bill that doesn't come every month, when the money is just sitting there in that separate, whether it's a whole separate account or a separate line item of your budget that you've built up, paying that bill is way less stressful than trying to totally. figure out how to cover it. And it comes with vacation, like you said too, Nikki, of the, the credit card, $5,000 on your credit card. We talk to families of like, okay, so your pattern right now is that you go on vacation in the summer, you put $5,000 on the credit card, then you spend a six or eight months paying it off. And then the next summer you, you swipe it again. Well, what if we did one year where you took a smaller vacation and you started the habit of saving every month? And now from every year forward, you can just pay that in cash and you do not have to pay that bill off every single year and create this cycle. And not to mention pay way more for the trip because you paid all the credit card interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, we have to do the little shifts and we have to figure out like where we are in in a pattern of paying for things that we already experienced. I have a question I'm trying to wrap my head around. And this is the, this is the emergency fund mm-hmm. that you were talking about. So I'm just thinking when I was in my 20s and I lived by myself, I made very little money. So it really was kind of survival, but I did have credit card debt and I did use credit cards. I can see myself thinking, okay, I I understand logically why it's important to have this fund. But then I also would be fighting myself saying, well, that's also kind of what the credit card's for. So if I really need an emergency, I could use the credit card. So wouldn't it be better for me to just pay off the credit card and then do the emergency fund? Our goal is always to get away from credit card debt in, in, in its entirety, right? And I am not someone who right. thinks that we shouldn't use credit cards at all. Just pay them off every month. Like if you if yeah. you have the self-control to do that, there are rewards for using credit cards, not just the actual point rewards, but security rewards and all that kind of stuff. 
The problem is if you try to use your credit card for an emergency fund, let's say you had $5,000 of credit card debt and you work your butt off for three months and now you've got $3,000 of credit card debt, right? You've paid off two grand and an emergency comes and you have no money for it. So now you need to increase your balance again. You need to go pay for that emergency and now you're back at 4,000 or 5,000 or whatever it is. That is an emotional... We keep coming back to the emotional, but the only way to avoid habit, to avoid falling back into bad habits is to keep that emotional energy. And I think that as soon as we see, well, I worked my butt off and I paid off a bunch of debt, but now I'm right back where I was before. What's the point of this? That is a Mm -hmm. really powerful inner voice. And so we have to save the emergency fund to be able to say, okay, I don't need to lean on the credit cards. I can keep doing my debt payoff journey. Look at what I was able to get myself by creating this emergency fund by paying off debt. It's really just that that cycle. And, And... it is easy to say like, okay, paying off the credit cards are more important because of the interest rate. But, th- but that cycle, we hear it all the time of like every time someone has to backslide. Yeah. And there's going to be moments of backslide, but ones that are that big, it's hard to keep fighting through them. So what is your advice then for somebody that has a limited budget, but you do find some wiggle room, mm-hmm. right? Like you said, once you kind of go back and look at the ramen budget. So if you're trying to get that that $500 or $1,000 savings, do you then live on the ramen budget until you have that savings? Or like, how do you... How do you get to that savings? Yeah. So this is going to depend on how much how much wiggle room you have, right? And I think that like yeah. completely trying to live on the ramen budget, that'll work for a month or two. If you have to do mm-hmm. it longer than that, I would start to look at other options. And actually, even from the beginning, for most people, I would say, look for another way. So the first, the first thing we tell people all the time is go through all the crap in your house and sell oh. the stuff you're not using. Like research has shown that the average American has $1,100 worth of stuff in their house that they haven't touched in the last year. Oh my gosh, you could like totally make half of that already. No, that's right. just the value of it used. That. That's not the value of it yeah. new. <laughs> that's like, you can go sell $1,100 wow. worth of stuff. So do that. Or pick up, yeah. you know, decide like, hey, our date nights twice a month are really important to me. Here are the ways that we can make it cheaper, but even then it's going to cost us this much money. I don't want to cut that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to babysit for a couple of nights or I'm going to pick up a small side hustle. We don't want to completely sacrifice our time and our mental health, right? But like finding little ways to make money, pick up a freelance, a small freelance gig, something to just give you enough to build that that base. And there's also power in, in side hustles, in additional streams of income that give you more financial security, right? And I think that we, you hear all the time these like stats about millionaires and people who build wealth and like the average millionaire has seven streams of income and there's security in that, right? If you lose your job, you still have some money coming in. If your interests change, you still have some money coming in, right? There's just like different things you can do. And so I think that finding ways to earn a little bit more, starting first with like, let's declutter and earn a little bit from the stuff we've already paid for uh, is a good mm-hmm. place to start. But I think that when you're first building that up, this is an opportunity to kind of look around and side hustle a little bit. That's another amazing thing I think about that is that like this was a lesson I feel like I learned 15 years ago as a freelancer, which was the benefit of having many clients Mm -hmm. so that if one disappears, I'm still okay. I've not lost my whole job. And that's that's a big learning for me here is that uh, why why am I not thinking about that in terms of my household finances? And I'm just thinking too, like going into the holidays, assuming that we'll have stores to shop and that kind of thing and people will be hiring. Uh, But you think about like the holidays and you think about all of the 
places that temporarily hire people. Mm. How if you could just go into the holiday season and just know it's just temporary, but all that money you make goes into that emergency fund. And then after that goes off of paying debt. I think I would have a lot easier time with that side hustle, you know, along with working my full-time job, yeah. just knowing that it's a temporary thing. Mm-hmm. And there's like this really clear purpose of where that money's going. And on Pete's point, though, about not thinking about that in the frame of your household, I do want to say for the people that are married and that have kids, this is one of the things that gets risky when you have a sole income earner, right? And I mm-hmm. think that we hear you know, obviously we speak to moms. We hear from a lot of moms who are stay-at-home moms and who are like, I really want to start this business or this side hustle. Like it would only be like 10 hours a week, but I don't know if I should, or I don't know if it's a, if, if it's worth it. Like my husband already makes enough money. My partner already makes enough money. That's still something. And if God forbid something happened to your spouse's job, you have some experience to put on a resume. You have a little bit of money coming in. It It just is a little bit extra security. So I think that making sure that every household has at least two streams of income, whether that's coming from the same person or two different people. And even if one is massively bigger than the other, it's just some additional peace of mind because we never know what's going to happen. We've seen that in 2020, I mean, way too many times now. Um, But it's just a little preparation. It's great. Yeah, I'm exhausted. My brain hurts. Uh, my brain is <laughs> it's on fire. Uh, I I have a, a a couple more uh, two two more quick questions. Sure. Uh, but, you know, quick is dependent on you. I'll try to keep it quick. <laughs> One is uh, resources for people who are looking to budget as uh, or uh, as they go into retirement. Mm. Retirement is imminent. Trying to figure out how to how to improve your relationship with money at this time in your life and careers. Yeah. So um, I'm still a big fan of, of YNAB if you need a budget, uh, regardless of life stage. I think it's really helpful for retirees because you tend to have a little bit more money in your bank account, right? Because whether you've withdrawn from a retirement account or you're getting a pension, you, you take out, you get more than one month at a time, not from a pension, but when you withdraw from your retirement accounts. And I think sometimes we look at that balance and we're like, oh, like we can go on vacation, we can do whatever, not realizing that that budget was supposed to last you longer. So something like YNAB is built to give every dollar in your bank account a job, whether that job is for June 2020 or for August 2020, it it breaks it out. I think that's really helpful. I think as you prepare for retirement, really go in. You can go through the Social Security Administration and get an estimate of how much you're going to get in Social Security pay. You can sit down with a a certified financial planner for an hour. Many CFPs are now um, hourly. You You don't have to have them manage your assets, but they can sit down with you and say, like, here's a safe amount to withdraw. Get a really clear picture of how much you're going to have to spend a month or a year to cover your expenses and start to design your lifestyle around that number. Um, so many of us have strong beliefs about our, what our retirement should be. And we've never actually squared it with what we have and what we need to, to do. And I think that before you even, you know, have that last day sitting down and having those conversations with an expert and also with your partner of what do we want to do and what do we want to prioritize is important. Um, but YNAB is my favorite uh, budget tool for that process. I have it open right here and I've already sent it to my wife and I said, my expert guest today, who is very smart, recommends this. We should look about it. And I will say it, it's a little... It, it thinks about money a little bit differently. So we yeah. we tend to think about money as like, okay, money comes in this month and out this month and we should look at it kind of in that 
fixed moment. And that is not how YNAB thinks about things. So we have um, a full setup guide and a video on our website talking you through the system and like how to get set up. Because we do have people that sign up for it. And then they're like, this is a lot. And I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> this is a lot. But as soon as they do it, as soon as they do the setup process, which doesn't take very long, it's just you need a little bit of guidance. They have the most amazing reviews. I've literally budgeted every single dollar I've ever made in YNAB. It has helped us make so many major decisions. We've heard that from so many people in our community. Yeah. But it, it does it does shift your mindset a little bit, which I think a lot of us actually need because we don't have yeah. healthy relationships with money to begin with. Something that I would highly recommend going when you're looking at retirement is to get that financial advisor. T- t- so you're not feeling like you have to do it on your own, right? I don't even know how I would plan for retirement on my own. But when we went to a financial advisor, they plugged in all of our our numbers and everything and said, you know, this is what you would have if you retired at age 60. This is what you would have if you retired at age 62. This is what, you know, this is good, this is bad, whatever. And like as humans, unless you're Chelsea, I don't know how you could come up with those numbers on your own. Right. So I think it's worth the investment to have yeah. an expert look at that stuff with you. I think it is. Uh, what I want everyone to know though is that not all financial advisors are created equal like any other profession, mm. but differently, not all financial advisors have what's called fiduciary duty. Mm-hmm. Fiduciary duty means they have to do what is best for you. Other financial advisors, which is actually over 90% of financial advisors, oh, only have to have what's best case. So like if it's if it's a good tool, and they might get paid a commission for recommending that good tool, they can recommend it to you even if there's a better choice. So I think that finding a CFP, finding someone who has fiduciary duty is really important to make sure that they're not going to either want to take over completely managing your investments for you, taking them out of current advisors, which can mean higher fees and actually lower long-term use. Um, But they're also going to give you the tools that actually fit what you want in your goals. So make sure you're kind of looking for that way. There's a website called XY Planning Network that is all CFPs with fiduciary duty. You can search by location and almost everyone on there actually will also work remotely so they can get on a Zoom call with you like this and do the do the meetings. Um, but make sure you're finding someone that has that fiduciary duty. Wow. I didn't Great know point. that. Yeah, I am so glad you brought that up. <laughs> See, that's why we have experts. That's right. <laughs> this has been absolutely fantastic, Chelsea Brennan. You're amazing. Thank you. I was so glad to be here. You are awesome. Yeah, it was so helpful. So helpful. Thank you for your I hope I didn't scare you too much, Pete. No, I hope we haven't totally scared you. Like I was like, oh God, money person. Let's try ask everything. So I hope I know, you'll come right? I hope you'll come back and not let my I would love to come back. This was really useful and and we need to talk about money probably more often than every eight years. You think? Because we have all these questions. Yeah, right. What do you we, think about this? What's just, this? What just flatten this? flatten the curve. We're gonna flatten the curve on money. Uh, this is great. Chelsea, why don't you give us a little plug? Where would you like people to go find you and all of your great work? Absolutely. You can find us at smartmoneymamas.com. Our podcast is called The Smart Money Mamas Show. And we are at Smart Money Mamas on all social platforms. I am on Instagram all the time. So if you want to connect with me, ask follow-up questions, feel free to DM me there. I am a little addicted to the app, but that's where I'm at. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Acceptance is the first step. And you have so many great tools on your website too. Lots of great information. So I highly recommend that people go check that out. This is very, very good stuff, y'all. Please uh, engage. Don't be like Pete. Engage. 
five minutes a day. Thank you so much, everybody, for your time and attention. On behalf of Chelsea Brennan and Nikki Kinzer, I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next week right here on Taking Control, the ADHD podcast.